everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us here on Can I Play a Play this Sunday. We definitely appreciate you taking time out to come spend a little moment with us. We know you could be somewhere else. Blessings to you and wherever you may be. Matthew, good day. How are you there? Good day, buddy. Good to hear your voice. And uh, just say hello for everybody in Coconut Creek, the butterfly capital of the world. Okay, butterflies and bikinis or other butterflies? We just got regular butterflies, man. Just keep your head in the right place here. We got to talk serious today. We got to have a serious talk. We got a serious topic. Oh, well, yeah, I've been looking at it. I've been checking it out, man. I just can't wait because I had a whole bunch of questions and uh, <laughs> finally got some movie tax issues and stuff we okay. need to find out about. Yes. Yeah, so introduce <laughs> our guest. Okay, uh, just let me make sure John is with us. John, are you with us? Yes, I am on the line. Thanks. Hi, John. It's great to have you. I'm going to introduce you, uh, just tell a little bit about you, and then we will bring you into the conversation and pepper you with about 10,000 questions. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, okay. One quick thing, by the way, my last name is pronounced like Tim Tebow, so John Tebow. I'm glad you told me that because that's, I was probably going to say it like that, but Lamont just Yeah, he was going to mess it up, John. He, he was going to mess it up, John. He was going to mess it up. I'm going to tell on him first. The bane of my life. <laughs> I was going to say T-Bolt. Is yeah, that close? close? Yeah. But you yeah, don't really say, like say the, the T on the end? Correct. He's just like Tim Tebow. Same thing. Okay. All right. Good. So we've got John Tebow, the founder and the CEO of iLobby, and he is the author of the number one international bestseller, How to Change a Law. His company and his new book are focused on empowering voters so that they can change laws, basically how to improve their community, influence their country, and impact the world. And he has served in government affairs at MCA Universal. He was the first VP of business development and marketing at eBay and the first VP of marketing at Financial Engines. With his wife, whose name we will have to find out before we finish this, he founded and is chairman of the T-Bolt Foundation, a private family foundation that supports charitable efforts focusing on children's health entrepreneurial, financial literacy, education, and self-sufficiency. So, John, we are very happy to have you. And uh, just by the way, what's your wife's first name? Debbie. Debbie? Yeah. Okay. So, Debbie, if you're listening, we wanted to know your name here so that you didn't feel left out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um I, I just wanted to uh, say thanks for joining us, and we got a really good – the topic for today, as you probably have been hearing all this, and you guessed, is how to change a law, a do-it-yourself guide for frustrated voters. I would assume that if people are voting, they often feel frustrated, and changing laws is a really interesting thing, and it's interesting to me because I, I imagine – I could be wrong about this, but I imagine that most people think that changing a law – is pretty much outside the, uh, uh, the the circle of their power or their ability to make things happen. And I'm assuming that um, you have a different idea about that. So could you start out just simply by telling us what every is time, I lobby? Every time I go to the gas pump, I think that. You think you <laughs> want to change the law? Man, I'm frustrated as hell, so let me be the first to say that. Okay. Well, you don't like okay. all those taxes? <laughs> You're supposed on, to put it in your come car. On, come on, come on, come on John. I'm not listening to him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for having me on. It's um, really good to sort of explain some of this, and I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. And, you know, Matthew, you're absolutely right. The reason it's difficult for people to get this is that we just haven't been exposed to it. And part of the reason is and has to do with affordability. So when most voters, including myself, look at laws being changed, we think, oh, it's the lobbyists, the politicians, it's big companies. And mm -hmm. in a sense, that's right, because they're paying a half million to a million dollars a year or more to work with government affairs folks and make stuff happen. 
whereas the rest of us are like, I don't know, I'm signing a petition or demonstrating or whatever. So we're doing ineffective things. And what part of my idea here is that you can take the same tactics and strategies that larger companies use and through crowdfunding, just like think of it like Kickstarter for issues, raise the money, clarify your issue, and then use those funds. And instead of just wasting it away, say, hey, you know, we raised thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and we can hire someone to represent us to, which is weird, to our representatives. So it's basically reducing the cost by making it more affordable. And then the one small thing I want to add is that there are a number of lobbyists who I've talked to in Washington who have left the big companies, and instead of saying, "Hey, we need a million dollars just to get started," they're willing to do it for much smaller amounts and as low as hmm. five or ten thousand dollars a month for a two- or three-month exploratory look. Wow. So, so iLobby is um, – could you say a little bit more about how that actually works? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, I, if, um, I go on, if I go online to iLobby, what am I going to see? Well, basically, the first thing you have to do is you have to clarify your issue. And what I've done is say, okay, what are the three most important things that people need to do? And I've isolated it to message, mass, and money. But the message part is really what is your issue or what is the thing that you want to change, whether it's a law mm-hmm. at the federal, state, or local level. And then if you think about how the politician works, we're just um, mimicking their behavior. So basically you start a debate or other people can come in and vote on your debate. So let's say you start a debate, you want to reduce gas tax in your state, for instance. And you say, okay, this is a very specific thing. I want to do this. You pull together some information, and we help you do that. We find out if there's any other uh, current laws that you can avail yourself of or what you want to change so you can get as specific as possible. And then you kind of put the idea out there. And you can put uh, links in on your particular debate so you can have links pro and con, which I think is a good idea versus having just you know, a one-sided point of view where it's like propaganda. So if you have both sides, what will happen is you, you share that and you get people to come in and begin to argue back and forth until you finally come up with a solution. And then theoretically what happens is people can vote on it, they can share, they can add other arguments, and hopefully you come up with a better idea by the end of the day. And with that, once that's sort of settled, the next stage would be that you say, okay, if people are serious, Put your money where your mouth is. We'll raise money and begin to make this happen. Oh, cool. Well, so it sound it sounds like it's it's not. I'm sorry, I'm stuttering here. It sounds like uh, it really is sort of like crowdfunding for the little guy. I mean, yeah, in terms exactly. Of politics, and you don't have to really be associated with any particular party, right? No, no. The idea is that it's non. I mean, when you focus on issues, generally they're nonpartisan. So I don't think taxes are a partisan issue, like it's either Republican or Democrat. And the other thing is we're focused on issues and not candidates. So therefore, the issue, the, the discussion isn't about, you know, should Hillary or Trump be president? That's not where we are. It's really what is the problem in your community that you want to solve? And it could be something. Something as simple as, you know, hey, I want to put a, uh, uh, some speed bumps on my street <clears throat> to slow down traffic to keep the kids safe. Okay. And, you know, something as simple as that. So, so let's say that, that was that local. So cause yeah. that's, that is about as, as, as uh, local as you can get, a speed bump issue. Now, I would go on that site and create a, um, an issue like that for pros and cons, and then how do people find out about it? Right. So what you want to do at that point is you obviously you want to share it. So you're going to share it either if you have an email list or with your friends or on Facebook or on Twitter. And all those social media links are embedded into the uh, platform. And then and then people just start jumping into it. Yeah, I think, you know, in the area I live, for instance, this seems like a very small thing to people who are not here. I'm in northern California. But there was an issue with the FAA 
<clears throat> implementing what they called the next gen system. And what they did was they lowered the uh, elevation of planes coming into San Francisco airport. And all of a sudden people in wealthy areas started discovering at five in the morning that 747 jets were coming in 500 or 800 feet over their homes. Oh, and it, the, the rumble and dissonance was so horrible that they, you know, they started freaking out. Right. And they ended up um, coming together in one community, actually, uh, a fairly small community of 7,500 people, a thousand people all came together. And then what they did was they, not on our site, they, they did this independently. They pooled the money and then they went and they hired a, uh, an aviation attorney who did sound studies with a, a contractor or a consultant. What's okay. interesting to me about that is they ended up working through, um, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but they ended up working through the local FAA people who have control over what the airplanes would do in terms of dealing with this system. What they missed, mm-hmm. I think, is that this same problem was occurring in Chicago, Phoenix, North Carolina, Northern California, and a few other test cases that the FAA had gone forward with. Um, but they never appealed to the chairman of the committee that oversees the FAA. So they basically work from the bottom up, and they're still dealing with the headache today. This is like two or three years later now. Wow. So, so that was like a tactical mistake or strategic mistake, you're saying? Yeah, left I, I think it out. is, yeah. I mean, if the second part of my idea here is that <clears throat> you – need to have a mass of people if you only i mean you know how this works if you go to a town hall meeting and you raise your hand you get two minutes to speak they say thank you very much and then you're done right but if you come in with a group and you say hey guess what i have 200 residents in my community who support me and you know the mayor or the council members are there and you have that kind of presence and you've already clarified your issue so you know exactly what the pros and cons are you come in well-prepared, they're going to look at you very differently. And if you say, for instance, hey, I'd love you to support me on this issue, and if you don't, on the next election, you might not be in office. Do politicians take that very seriously? <laughs> go, in, hey, so, look, go, in, go in with the blazing guns and don't make your threat too subtle. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, if you come in as a, an informed citizen and you've really researched the topic. And the idea of researching it is, again, in the case of this uh, particular community, you have a 1,000 people. They can do way more research and pull more material together much more quickly than just a handful of two or three people. So by bringing everybody together, you end up having a place where you can say, let's resolve the issue, let's solve the problem for the lawmakers so we can present it to them and say, here's what we think is the answer. So you're basically doing their work for them, right? So we can we can go at any any level, like very very local, as you said, like a speed bump, or um, I don't know that's sort of local about the level of uh, planes coming in, but it probably affects a lot of people over the space of a mile or two where those planes swoop down. Um, what if I wanted to do an issue like? Um, stop fracking in a certain county in Florida. Yeah, you could do that. And again, what what I would do is look at who is overseeing that. Is it a county issue? Is it a state issue? Um, And again, we have, you know, the book and some courses and other materials to guide you. Um, And, you know, I think that's really helpful to sort of instruct you so people aren't going down blind alleys and wasting a lot of time, which can happen very easily because, you know, you do it as a one-off and it's complicated. But if someone was holding your hand like a Sherpa taking you up Mount Everest, um, you know, you need a guide to kind of walk you through those steps. And hopefully we're sitting in the middle of that. We're not going to do all the work for you. We're going to help set up the platform, make sure that you can get going. And again, if your group got to the point where you said, look, we are raising money, then we would find a lobbyist whose practice area ties to the thing that you want to get done. You know, you may, you okay. may end up with a multi-jurisdictional problem where it's the Department of Energy, it's your local county, it's the EPA. You know, it can get pretty complicated pretty fast. Wow. So 
if if I wanted to start something like that, and I, I would talk, I would go to your site, iLobby, and yes. is there a fee for me to get started? No. Yeah, you just post your debate. And the idea is that if you read my book, I go through Chapter 7 where I talk about all the little things that you should do. And so there are people who are creating their own debates now and they have in the past. Sometimes they're not as great as they should be, but, um, you know, you have to start somewhere. So how long has iLobby been in existence? Well, mentally, (laughs) I've had it in my head for a while. And part of it was really getting clear about how this would work, what we did, who the right audience was, those kinds of things. And then also I had a lot of discussions with um, politicians, lobbyists, and uh, CEOs and heads of trade groups. And so I would say probably you know, in the last year or so or a little bit less did we start doing a more formal launch. Um, but we've, we've done it in terms of trying to determine who the right audience is. You know, it's got to be somebody who is interested in advocacy around issues. And so it took a little while to clarify that. Okay. So um, what kind of issues are currently being worked on? So the ones on the site, there's a handful of um, – and you can, go to the, you can go to the site now. It's ilobby.co. And they will come up. So there's some as specific as, actually, you mentioned fracking. Someone has here, should fracking be banned until further researched? So that goes to the heart of the matter of, you know, where do you stand on that energy issue? Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, related to the Zika virus. Do you think the Zika virus is a threat? If so, support HR 5044. There's another one on H1B visas. And, again, this is tied to a Senate bill, number 2266. The reason I mentioned the specific bills is I want to just pose a contrast to you where another person has one where they say genocide awareness. So think about it this way. If you were going to meet with your lawmaker and he says, what can I do for you today? And you just said genocide awareness. He'd be like, okay, um, I think the meeting is over. <laughs> like, what do you really want? They, they have no idea, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to be specific. So when you say something like, hey, I want to do something with the Zika virus in this particular one that is on the site. And you, you can go to congress.gov and see how many bills are related to that. So this particular person found one that already had a sponsor and you want a sponsor tied to it because that really is a, you know, a representative, a Senator, a Congressman, somebody who has spent some time thinking about it and basically you are sort of backfilling for them and bringing in more people to help it work um, in your favor. So in this case, he's saying, hey, I want to support this particular bill, and here's why. And he's giving both sides. And then we have links going uh, to yeses and nos, including videos to support them. So just to go back for a moment, a sponsor in the context that you were talking about, means someone who is already an elected official at Correct. whatever level you're trying to deal with this law. Correct. Because you so, and I as private yeah, you and I as private citizens cannot go into Congress or the state legislatures and say, Hey, I have a new law, why don't you guys do it? It doesn't work that way. You actually have to get a sponsor and typically it's going to be the representative in your district. But it doesn't have right. to be if you have people in other districts, for instance, let's say it was the Zika virus and it was related to healthcare or, you know, which is that, this is what this one's about anyway. It's about funding. Um, And they're talking about $376 million of funding being used to fight the Zika virus. And it was not appropriate apparently. But anyway, what happens there is if my particular representative is not sitting on healthcare and is not sitting on anything related to the Zika virus, then she, well, it is a she in this case, she can write a dear colleague letter to the chairman of the committee on health care, you know, presuming that's where it is. But if you happen to live in Florida, let's say in zip code 330033, and that member was the chairman, then you stand to be in a much better position to influence them because you are their constituent. 
And the idea is I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I help you with issues somewhere else in the country, and vice versa. Okay. So, well, I do live in Florida, and I live about, I don't know, 30 minutes north of where the Zika virus is showing up in Miami. So it it is a regular conversation here now, and there's a lot of conversation about funding and not getting funding and who's not doing what. And um, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of laws passed about this in the next year or so, or a lot of, yeah. certainly is a lot of conversation about it. And what's interesting to me is the idea of, of what you seem to be doing is to take a process, which I'm guessing the average person has little to no idea about and say, look, here's something how you can actually have an effect on what goes on in your life legally at a local or county or state or even federal level. And here's a process that uh, I guess 98% of the people don't really understand or even know about. That's correct. Right. Right. And as I say, the people who do know are the politicians and the heads of the companies and they're doing this every day. They're they're very aware of it. It's complicated, and they're not in a a position or a mood to say, "Oh, you know, I think I'll just tell everybody else." They don't care. <laughs> I mean, maybe they do, but they realize the the complexity of it. It sometimes takes some education. So I think what we're mm-hmm. doing is saying, "Hey, look, I lobby will hold your hand. We're gonna mask." the complexity, and put it behind the scenes. The one analogy I like to use is, um, and again, this came out of you know, financial engines after uh, eBay. What, what financial engines was offering was very, very complicated in terms of retirement services for average people who had 401k plans. And what we ended up doing was saying, hey, look, this is high-quality investment advice that you're going to get from a Nobel laureate, which Bill Sharp, who was the founder of the company, was. And mm-hmm. it's the same advice that the smartest, wealthiest people are using. We want to make it available to you. And people didn't quite get it. So we ended up pivoting, basically. And we made it available to uh, companies. Uh, actually, the state of Florida was a signatory to uh, financial engines in their employment benefits uh, plan and, and administration, I believe. It's just that people weren't ready. So think of it like, again, if you think of early Schwab where they said, hey, listen, we have mutual funds and high-quality investment advice, and as a stockholder, you could actually buy this at a much lower price. So instead of paying okay. $95 a trade, you can get a trade for $9.99. People were floored by that okay. in the 70s and 80s. Never heard of it before. So it's the same thing here. So I think there's a parallel between financial literacy and political literacy. Okay. All right, and well, yeah, and about all kinds of issues then. So, uh, Lamont, you got an issue in the work? I still, I still don't know who controls the gas prices. I want to know how can they play <laughs> games with that, and and why we can't get together and regulate it ourselves some kind of way. Yeah, um, usually it's at a. I mean, you're in Florida. I'm in California. And I have a friend I'm in, in California. Energy. So Lamont, I'm, I'm, I'm in California. California. Oh, you are? Okay. Yes. Right. He doesn't like to say exactly where, but he is out there. Uh, okay. Well, there's only <laughs> 34 million people here, so. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, can find so your most milk cartons. Yeah. You know how the gas works, right? I mean, the state takes a lot, and they have all these blends. So the reason you have all these taxes associated with it is because you, you have – you know, ethanol and 85 and high octane, all these different versions. And so the suppliers have to blend these in those tanks at the gas station. And there's a lot of cost involved. So you've got a lot of people with their hands in the till, you know, jacking up prices as they go along. So it isn't just the refiners or the original suppliers of the, uh, the oil. It's a complete pipeline. And because it's an energy issue, I think that is a big one. It's a complicated one. And uh, the guys who've been doing it, they're not about to, like, oh, we think we'll just lower the gas price. See, now the plot thickens because you can go 10 blocks, not even 10 blocks, five blocks, 
and the gas could change anywhere from fifteen to twenty five cent per gallon. Right, right. Yeah, and they said it. They said it at the retail level. So a, a retail gas station owner, depending on if he's independent or if he's with one of the large companies, uh, one of the brands, he can set his own prices. Wow. And some of it has to do Lamont, with you know how much rent they're paying where they are. Or it's like I, I, if I get gas in Boca Raton, which is right next to, it's where my office is. It could be ten, fifteen cents, twenty cents a gallon higher than if I drive over to my house, which is just you know four miles away, and it drops down. The rents higher, all kinds of things. But if we wanted to change that, that's a pretty complicated process, I guess. Yeah, and the other that's thing a, is, that's a you, tough issue. Right, and do you really want to do it, and do you want to regulate it? I mean, it's regulated now, and if you start talking about price fixing and all that. I think it just makes the market less efficient, you know? Well, I guess on the flip side of that, too, um, John, money only means something to the people that don't have it. It don't mean anything to the people that do. Totally, so those, yeah. Like, those, those little 15 and 20 cents may not mean a lot to some people, but for somebody that's living from paycheck to paycheck that's working and might not have a gas saver, you know, he really feel that. Absolutely, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, you could you could pursue that issue, but what you'd have to do is you would really have to get lots of people to come around that issue, agree with you, and begin to build a mass of people who can make an impact. That's really how that and works. You have to so be need... very specific about what you wanted to change, too, I imagine, because you're saying all kinds of people are involved at different levels in that. You know, it's like. Every a lot of people getting a cut out of that two dollars and twenty five cents a gallon. Or what do you pay for it out there, Lamont? Oh, it's uh, what two two fifty, almost three dollars. Wow. Some areas, right. some some yeah. areas, it it's more than three dollars. Like you know, I was driving through Beverly Hills early this morning, and they like three fifty, man, three sixty five. Really? A gallon. Wow. Yeah. I, I paid two dollars and twelve cents putting my car today. Yeah. yeah, not the same. So I know the problem. You know. I think the problem would be, you know, and I agree with uh, John. I mean, trying to amass enough people to really make a difference, and that's what I meant by my, my analogy earlier about going some going in with your guns loaded by doing all your research and having all your pertinent information, and and having a whole lot of people to support what it is you're trying to. To make happen, but even though a lot of people are suffering from the gas crisis and they always talk about it, and at the end of the day, usually that's what it ends up being—just a lot of talk. You know, they really don't want to come together to really make it happen. Right, right. I mean, if you're in California, you remember the bill? I think it was a year ago, SB 277, regarding vaccinating your kids, where if you wanted to, um, <clears throat> if you wanted your kids to go to school, they had to be vaccinated. Because apparently at Disneyland around that time, uh, the uh, a number of people had tuberculosis, and then it got mm-hmm. spread, and thought we were going to have an epidemic. So they ended up saying mm-hmm. that actually this bill passed, and Governor Brown signed it. And it turns out that the sponsor of the bill happens to be Senator Jerry Hill, who lives in my district in Northern California. So I'm fairly familiar with it. Um, but I still know people. I have friends down in Orange County who are sitting on the opposite side of that saying, we don't like the government telling us we have to vaccinate our kids. Otherwise they can't go to the same schools. And it was a great debate. But what was interesting is that the people who really opposed it didn't get organized enough to stop it from happening. And part of my thesis here is that if you want to change a law, you probably want to try to change it before it becomes a law. So get in early on. And what, what I find shocking every time is, you know, in the first of the year, every year, here in California is a good example, same as at the federal level, but you get a list in the newspaper and it says, here's the 900 new laws that the California legislature passed. And that's hmm. out of two or 3,000 bills they had running through the entire session. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was a law now. Like, you know, there's so many new laws. And generally citizens, you and I and everybody else, we're not aware of them until it's too late. 
would you what would you attribute that to, John? That that we're just not paying attention, or why would you think that we're not aware of these laws? Yeah, well, I think we're not aware of the bills, and I'll, I'll give you the the rough numbers. And that goes to my, you know, the three things I talked about at the beginning were the three major problems that we have, you and I and the average people, but not the serious lobbyist and the serious government affairs corporate guy. The three problems are apathy, access, and affordability. So the apathy piece is what you said. We don't feel like we can do anything, so we don't do anything. And it's so complicated, we don't know how or where to go, right? The access piece is we don't know who to talk to, and if we do, we can't figure out how to meet them, get their ear, write to them, etc. And then the last piece mm-hmm. is the affordability piece. So on the apathy side, I think what it's done is it's just convinced you're talking millions and millions of people who say there's nothing I can do, and you keep hearing that over and over again until finally people say, oh, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. And what I want to contrast that with is when I was working at, if you were in L.A. or the area, you know, MCA Universal. So I was working there in government affairs in the early 90s, and we had the exact opposite problem. So, you know, I had access to the heads of the studios and all those sort of lobbyists and attorneys and all those guys because they really cared. And politics was very much sort of at the top of their list. They knew it affected their business. I see one quick thing on this is that just one final point is, you know, I've thought a lot about when do people care? How do you get the motivator? And I think what it comes down to is when you have something to lose, you'll start taking it seriously. And unless that happens, you won't. I mean, the student debt crisis is exactly the same thing. Students are coming out of college. They got a hundred thousand dollars in debt. They can't get a job. They don't know how to pay it off. And they want the government to refinance it. But the government said, hey, you signed up for 7 or 8 or 10%. And even though the federal funds rate is only like 0%, they're saying, we don't want to renegotiate that deal. We'll accept the, the few losses of people who can't pay their student loans. Um, but that, actually, that bill and that whole issue, you hear it from the candidates every election season, and it's still going on. But you're talking about, I think it's like a $1.5 trillion problem. It's huge now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess I guess what's so ironic to me is everybody know it exists. Everybody know that that bird is going to come home at some point, but get them to do something about it is a whole nother can of worms. And the other thing I like to say, the same people that create the game also created the rules. So Correct. how do we change it? So how do we change that? Because they made the rules too. Right, right. Well, that's part of what I'm saying. They don't make the rules in a vacuum. They make the rules and they are educated on the issues by the, quote, special interests. And the special interests are whether they're, you know, public affairs folks or whomever, but they're representing various clients. So all this data is out there. But this is where, you know, as I say, it gets so complicated. But, you know, companies hire these people just like they would hire an attorney to handle a particular matter um, or a tax accountant to handle their taxes. They're going to hire a public affairs or a political lobbyist to handle the government affairs function within the companies. So let's say that I, what, what I, what I want to understand here is let's say we, we have a, an issue like, um, we want to do something with the quality of the water in the town that I that I'm living in, and we do, we go through this process. Now, at some point, you're saying that we need to hire lobbyists to to work for us. Yeah, I mean, you may you may not need to. It depends on how complicated the issue is and where you end up. Um, okay. But let's say you let's say you have a small town, it's several thousand people, <clears throat> and you run a debate. You've got lots of back and forth and you end up with a pretty good solution about where you end up, what's going to happen is there's going to be two or three people, usually the person who starts the debate. I refer to them as the caucus leader. One or two or three of those people, somebody's going to be an attorney or a retired judge or something, but some people, somebody's going to come in and say, hey, I have real expertise in this area, and I don't mind staying on this, and they could actually drive the whole thing forward for you with what they have. And if it was something that got determined by the city council, 
let's say, um, they could say, hey, look, and, and I actually have a case in the book where I mentioned this, um, but the, uh, you could go in and say, look, I have 500 voters in your district. Would you like me to have them all come into your office tomorrow at 9? Obviously, they don't want to do that. You know, That's really what they would like to avoid. But mm-hmm. they, if you have a clear idea of what the problem is, you present it, and you have the – I don't want to say the word threat, but it's sort of like that – that, you know, if they represent the community and your interests and they do it the way, you know, they're supposed to, which is what their job is anyway as elected officials, then it would behoove them to help your group out. And because, you know, you, you have this diverse group of people, in other words, you're not just like the owner of the water filtration plant, right? You say, oh, my, okay. my 10 employees think we should do this. You're saying, no, no, no. We are real people in real neighborhoods. And, you know, the other thing I, I'm not going to talk about in this interview because it's too, um, <laughs> it goes way too deep, but really figuring out your story and really understanding how to make that effective by understanding mm-hmm. how to pitch it, how to put it together, and then having the facts to support it as well. Okay. Well, it's like selling anything else, I guess. You know, you got to have a clear story and it has to show where you want to go and what its appeal is and what the payoffs are and what happens if you don't accomplish it too. As you're saying, there's, there's, um, I understand you don't want to use the word threat, but we're we're talking about some kind of force or some kind of consequences. <laughs> you can say threat. It's okay. <laughs> I said it earlier. I said subtle threat. I made it softer. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's it's consequences that if you go this certain way, there's certain consequences. If you don't, there's others. And, it, and I'm, I hear you. What you're saying is you got to get your story clear. You, you have to really know what you're what you what it is you're telling, because otherwise, I guess it can get lost and not communicated. But you're you're saying sometimes you don't really need to pay someone. Uh, but if you're getting up on the state or the federal level, I'm guessing a lobbyist is pretty important. Yeah, partly because of the complexity, you know. And, there and what are does this person do? What does the lobbyist do? Yeah. So he or she, they influence elected officials, okay? So they they talk to you. You say, hey, here's my story. Here's my case. Here's my issue. This is what I want to get done. They say, good, we understand. That's our expertise. We know that area cold, and guess what? We have relationships with the heads of the specific committees related to the thing that you want to get done. So what you want to do is, again, it's just like a doctor. You know, If you have a heart problem, you go to a heart specialist. If you have a problem mm-hmm. with a broken leg, you go to an orthopedic surgeon. With lobbying, it's the same thing. If you have an issue regarding energy, you go to the energy lobbyist. If it's regarding healthcare, you go to the healthcare guys. And they all specialize. So you're not just picking anybody. You're picking one who is going to whose practice area is aligned with you and they have hopefully a deep bench and they have relationships with the people on the committee, including the mm. staff and in the agencies. So wow. you're buying their expertise. And they okay, know so how, how? I mean, this is. Yeah, go ahead. How do you deter? How did you t- determine who's honest and who's not in that arena? Well, I think you know. Initially, we thought we would just set it up where, you know, you match the lobbyist, uh, the group, or the portfolio with um, the uh, the caucus or the group of folks that you put together. But I think a more interesting way to do this, and we see this with lots of new Internet models, where the supplier of the services bids on the deal. So basically, I think it's a more interesting way to say, look, your group raised $50,000. You say, hey, look, I've got $50,000 with my group. I've got constituents in 20 different states. I've got you know, 8,000 people who've all signed on to my issue, and they all believe in it, and they've all put money in, and we're all ready to go. <clears throat> we make that available to the lobbyists, and the lobbyists bid on it. So you get to pick whoever is the best one. And they, all their information is actually completely transparent. So you can find out what companies they work for, uh, who the okay, clients so are, say, what their success uh, rate they, is, I mean, all that stuff. Okay, so if a lobbyist bids on this, 
and wins the bid, they commit a certain amount of time and energy to working on it. I mean, how do you how do you hold them accountable for what you pay them? Yeah, just like an attorney. So, no, no, that's There's... not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A oh, misappropriation sorry. of funds. That's what I was trying <laughs> to say. How, how do we know that they're not misappropriating our money? <laughs> What do they tell well, you they're going to do for it? I mean, they they say, okay, I'm going to give 20 hours a week to this for six weeks, or how does it work? Yeah, they would they would estimate what they think it's going to take exactly. Okay. And all right, they're not going to let, let's say their billing rate for the senior guy is 500 bucks an hour. You know, they might have an associate who's making 125 or something. You know, but there's a there's a handful of various things that you would need uh, in order to move it forward. And, and some of it is, you know, research. A lot of what they do, too, is they educate the client. So they would be doing what I am talking to you um, about now. They would say, this is how it works. This is who you should meet. This is how you can help. Um, they might say, hey, does anybody in your group of 10,000 people uh, work for a television station or the media? Because if you can get free press out of something and increase the public pressure, that would help. So there's lots of tactics and strategies. Think of it like okay. a PR firm then, you know. Okay. Wow. So and you, you don't pay you them said, all up front. You know, right. you, you dole it out as they do the work, and then they supply you. Were you, you quoting with realistic rates there, like 125 to 500 an hour? I think it, I'm thinking that it's probably in the same class as um, attorneys. Okay. You know? All right. And the attorneys are, you know, 100, 125 bucks an hour up to whatever, 750 or 1,000 an hour. Okay. And some of them, by the way, some of the the largest lobbying firms in Washington are law firms. So there's an overlap. Okay. Oh, wow. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I that's think, interesting. I, I think it is. The more I got into it, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I think it's, you know, it's fascinating. So oh, well, it, it, it just means we don't that you need, definitely but, better prepare yourself before you jump over there in that pond of water. Right. Well, he's saying that you know he's John's the guy's going to guide you through it, right? Yeah. And they, you know, in terms of what I, the other thing I love, which I include in the book, that it's a myth. You know, we hear from the media that lobbyists are bad, so we bought into that now, and the reality is. They are. They have to report everything they do, all the money that they get, who their clients are, what they do, and all those are public records. So all that information is available and out there. You just have to know where to find it. And in a sense, if they screw up or if they do something that um, is unethical, uh, they're going to get kicked out really fast because the politicians – and again, you know, the press is politicians are corrupt and all that, but in reality – I have, you know, I've gone on visits and trips to both Washington and Sacramento, and the politicians, for the most part, are really straightforward, smart, direct people who want to solve problems. And I think they get a bad rap. So a lot of that is what the media portrays in that, because it's more Mm -hmm. interesting to hear about the bad ones than the average guy who's doing good work all the time. Yeah, I, I I'm sure you're right. I I really do feel that probably that's true. So in order to be a lobbyist, do you have to have a license? Yeah, you. I mean, there's a couple of things that happen. Um, <clears throat> the lobbyists who are doing this full time uh, and they incur a certain number of hours and they receive a certain amount of money, they have to be registered. So it's a it's a very very regulated business. So they're regulated at the federal level and they're regulated at the state level. Um, if they are not, you know, putting in that amount of time, for instance, if some of the people on the team are just doing research and talking to the client, then they may not be a certified, quote, or a registered lobbyist. So they don't all have to be registered as a oh. full-time lobbyist. Yeah. I see. So if you, had, if you had a small firm of 10 lobbyists, you might have two senior lobbyists who are the real lobbyists, okay, who are the registered guys, and then you might have um, administrative staff who are not, and then two or three researchers who are not. Hmm. So, so they might use um, 
so if I wanted to get paid for lobbying for some local group here, I don't have to necessarily register, but I do have to make public everything I'm doing. Well, if you're doing it on a local level, if you if you as an individual go and I'm, I'm not going to give lobbying law here because I'm not an attorney, but if you go and talk to your representative, that's fine. You can do that. However, if ten friends pay you to go do that, then you're probably going to have to register. Okay. All right. So if I do it for no money, it's a little different. Well. For no money for yourself, yeah, because okay. all you're doing is talking to your representative, right? So if I'm retired and I've got my own income and I say to 10 friends, I'm going to go and represent you, but I'm not charging you money, I don't necessarily have to register. So when money gets involved, registration becomes important, I guess. Yeah, there's a couple of factors with regard to that. One is the amount of time you spend on it and the amount of money you earn in what period of time. And, uh, again, Florida has – and, again, these are not rules that you want to mess with. Think of it like the IRS. If you screw up, it's really very serious. So you don't want to play around with it. Who regulates it? Um, The – well, the feds regulate it, and so does the state. So they register – in California, for instance, they register with the Secretary of State. Okay. Uh, federally, do you register with the Secretary of State also? Um, you know, I actually am not sure. I do know that the Senate oversees um, it, and there is a law. It's called the the Lobbying Act. I think the last version of it was 1995. It's called the LDA. Let me bring it up. Interesting. Yeah, it's called the Lobbying Disclosure Act. Well, what you're telling me, however, is that if someone wants to get involved on the local level of making changes in local laws, it's not as complicated and not as difficult and certainly not as expensive. Correct. Unless that issue somehow links up to state and federal issues, which I guess sometimes it can. Exactly. Like I mentioned with regard to the air traffic problem. Uh-huh. Like, for example, the, I don't know what the law is right now, but they have – there was some controversy recently about these cameras at uh, intersections that take pictures of cars going through the red light. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's been some controversy about it, and I don't know, in some states they might be shutting them down because people are complaining about it. And I don't know if it's a violation of rights or if people just decided they wanted to, you know, get together and get that to stop. Um, Are you familiar with this issue? You know, I'm I'm familiar with the issue where you have – you're talking cameras? Yeah, it's video. Yeah, cam- uh, not so video. Cameras in, it's cameras in camera. gated communities. Yeah, I've heard about this uh-huh. like in Hidden Hills down in L.A. Um, apparently, some communities want to have um, the cameras, and they're recording all the license plates, right? And there's some towns right. that have done that because they want to um, theoretically reduce crime. So mm-hmm. I think that I has become an issue of First Amendment versus security. And, it's, again, it's an interesting debate because those are the two issues you're battling back and forth. Well, there's a lot of cities here in Los Angeles in L.A. County that uh, read, uh, ran up the red flag on that because they were doing it in a lot of communities, had the red light cameras, cameras on every stop corner and all that. Yeah. Then uh, some cities stopped using them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't followed it. And, again, just uh, by way of reference, when I mentioned the number of bills both at the state or the federal level, at the federal level, there's 10,000 bills rolling through Congress every session. And they only passed in the last session about 3%, which is around 335 bills. So that, that's a lot of volume and to be versed on all these different topics. And that's why you, you can't be an expert in all of them. It's just too much. Yeah. That's one of the reasons they rely on lobbyists? Yeah. I mean, the corporations do, Absolutely. 
Right. And that's why they say we want somebody who's an expert in this particular area because, it's mm-hmm. again, it's so complicated. If you look at the, uh, the length yeah. of some of the bills or laws that have gone through, you have 1,000-page bills that are so convoluted they're almost impossible to read or understand. Yeah, I could see the importance of that. If I was a multi-million dollar company and I was looking to, to move into a certain area and I wanted to see a certain thing happen in that community, then I could see definitely it would make sense for me to pay whatever dollar amount that costs, you know, just be good yeah. business at the end of the day. Just be good business. Right, just to ensure that your business is going to be okay and you aren't going to pay for stuff that wasn't necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I can move, move, free, move free. your whole production line there, and then they change the zoning on you. Right, and I can give you three great examples. One at eBay when eBay wanted to get into eBay Motors and sell cars um, in every state, they had to get uh, permission from the state to do it. And because it was so complicated, they hired a lobbyist for every state that they wanted to move into. The second right. thing. The other two ones that came up that are fairly recent are both Uber and Airbnb. So when you have new companies and unregulated businesses or they're competing in very regulated businesses where you do not have settled law, they need to find a way to solve the problem. And in the case of Uber, I'm a little more familiar with it, um, they fast-growing company. They had a lot of venture capital. They're moving forward. People like the service, but the taxi commissions didn't like you know, how that worked, and the insurance companies in the early days were not going to insure the driver. So if you got into an Uber car and you got in an accident, it was on the driver and his primary insurance, but his insurance said, hey, look, if you're getting paid to drive people around, we're not going to cover that loss. So what ended up happening was the uh, insurance commissioner of California got together with the insurance company and with Uber and the taxi commission pulled everybody together and said, hey, look, here's another way for you to, you, the insurance companies, to make money by providing a rider so that Uber can do business and provide better service in conjunction with the existing tax and livery companies. And it, it was really complicated, but fast-growing companies start looking at this and they say, you know what, this is way over our head. We need to bring in a lobbying group to make it happen. And that's what they do. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense. That's what I. Well, I'm I'm thinking definitely the next time I want to change something in my local community, I've got to go to this site. So I mean, it makes sense to me to to research it because you know it sounds like guidance for the everyday person to to make some changes in your own local area. That's you know not necessarily at the state or the federal area. It's a good place to start. I'm guessing you start at one place, you can learn stuff, and then you can advance if you want. Yeah, Sounds yeah, like no, absolutely. You did. Yeah, and, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was exactly that, if you know that case. And that happened in the early 80s where um, <clears throat> a, uh, a mother, her child, was killed by a drunk driver, and that's when the uh, blood alcohol content limits were higher. And she was so incensed by it that she got together with her neighbors. Then she started talking to politicians, and they said, hey, he can be drunk, and he's got 1.2. It's totally fine. So she fought that for like eight or ten years or something. Her name was Candy Leitner. And finally got the ear of the federal government and said, look, we've got to get this into every state. We can't have people being killed by drunk drivers. And the state said, nah, we're not going to do it. Why should we? And what forced – this is an interesting little wrinkle in here. Apparently what forced their hand was through, again, lots of people coming together around that particular issue and understanding the benefit of what would happen. They ended up saying to the states, hey, listen, under the National Highway Traffic Safety Act, if you want to get your federal funds for your roads and highways, it amounts to whatever, you know, 10 or $50 million in your state. We're not going to give it to you unless you change from 1.2 to 0.08. And all of a sudden, they, there's your threat. The federal government either you know, convinced, persuaded, or whatever you want to call it, the states, if you would like to have your state highway funding, you need to implement this law. Once they saw the economic benefit, they did it. And then now here we are 20, 30 years later where every state in the country has 0.08 um, 
as the standard for blood alcohol contents for drunk drivers. Mm. So, but a great, you know, very personal, emotional example of someone who worked really hard at it. And she didn't have the tools we have now with the Internet. You know, she was yeah. doing it just with her friends at a kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good job. Well, this is a really interesting subject, and uh, it's it's very different from what we usually talk about. I think, and uh, it's, it's neat to hear somebody who's doing this in a in an organized way. I'm I'm hoping that uh, how long has your book been out? How to change the law? Yeah, so we did a launch on uh, May 31st, and okay. I was we 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 gave it away. Kindle did a promotion on Amazon, and what was exciting was in a 24 hour period. Um, we gave away 18,450 books, <laughs> mm. wow. which I thought was great. And then we did another one with Goodreads, a smaller version where we gave a, the hard copy away. Um, but the book is still on Amazon, and um, I am doing you know, occasional giveaways, uh, and we'll be doing another one shortly as well through, through Amazon or through uh, a couple of other uh, sort of areas. Yeah. John, we like so down to the last couple of minutes of the show, so I want to give you this opportunity. Sorry, Matt. Give John an opportunity no to throw his information out there, you know, his contact information. I know you just started with the book, but you can tell our listeners how they can get at you. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the simplest way, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways. We have a Facebook page, there's a blog, there's all these things. But I think, and, you know, the book is on Amazon, so you can find it easily. But I think the simplest way is to sign up um, and get on the email list at ilobby.co. And from that, once you, and you can always unsubscribe if you're getting too much stuff. But I don't send that much. But so go to ilobby.co, sign up, and you will start to get more information about this. And what I've done as well is built a, uh, an online course, a short online course. And so a lot of these are free videos to walk you through the process and sort of hold your hand and begin to make it happen. And the two things that have come out of it is I've had feedback from people saying, hey, it's nice as a do-it-yourself thing, but I'd also be willing to pay if someone would say do it for me. So we're exploring that as well. Um, And I've done that now with a couple of – I did it with a city actually, a small town nearby here, where um, they put a a debate up, but I worked with the city manager and – moved it forward. So this is something that a city manager can use, regular folks can use, a politician who has a district that's so, so, you know, like rural in some cases, um, they can put an issue up just to get feedback um, and do it the same way. And you never know where it's going to come from. But the simplest way is to just go to uh, ilobby.co and sign up. Great. All righty then. We will thank you very much for taking time out to join us. And the show will be available immediately worldwide. Is that right, Matthew? That's right. That's right. John, great. thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. You guys were great. Thank you. <laughs>